in the unlikely event that I was ever asked to preach at a leadership conference, I, I might choose to preach on our passage this morning. Numbers chapter 12, it's a passage that as I spent time reading through this, really wished that I had spent more time uh, in my life before now meditating on the truth of this passage. Uh, it speaks right to the heart of the difficulty, not only in being a leader, but also in following leaders and working with other leaders, leaders in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, work leaders, your boss, managers, your husband, political leaders, government officials. If you've ever struggled with leaders in your life, or if you've ever struggled to be a leader, this passage is for you. But Numbers 12 is also a lot more than just leadership. It points clearly to Jesus Christ and the life that we find uniquely in him. So that we might see it, let's go before the Lord in prayer before we read. Our Lord, as always, we are glad for the opportunity uh, to hear you speak, to read your word, and to allow it to uh, transform us. If that's to be the case, we need you to make it happen. It is not part of our nature uh, to allow you to speak into our lives and to change us. That is a supernatural work. And so we would pray for the supernatural now, for the Holy Spirit to come to bear witness to the reading, the preaching of the word, that we would leave this place different than we came in because of you. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher and know he is not worthy, and only by your grace is he even able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Let me read uh, a chapter that's shorter than many of these Old Testament chapters we come to, but is chalk-filled with good stuff. Listen to God's word from Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy and he said to Moses, please, my Lord, do not hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. 
So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. I've put on the back of your bulletin, as well as in the children's bulletin, uh, kind of a more detailed outline than usual, so there's not much room to take notes, but uh, you can see if I'm actually making progress to the sermon and see if we'll ever get to the end of the sermon. Uh, it's one of these, another great passage that I feel like we could talk about all afternoon uh, and never even feel like we scratched the surface of the fullness of what's in here. So my hope is that can prime some things now for more reading for you to do on your own and some more consideration conversations, perhaps even in your families, and to uh, consider the full application of this to our lives. The passage jumps right into the gossip grumblings. Our passage begins with the words, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, where he had married a Cushite. Was that a sin for Moses to be married to a Cushite? No. Was it unwise? No. Was it really the issue? No. Verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? Now we're getting to the issue. If Moses' Cushite wife had actually been the issue, then what they would have said is, hey, we should talk to Moses about this, about this issue and confront him with this. Instead, they say, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? What about us? What does Moses' wife have to do with this? Absolutely nothing. Challenges to leadership often follow logical fallacies like that. And what they really do is reveal our own sinful heart. So often people will say, well, the leadership didn't do this thing that I think they should do. What that really means is, I didn't get my way. The leadership isn't listening to the people. You mean, I didn't get my way. The leadership thinks they know everything. You mean, I didn't get my way. It's like when kids say to parents, that's not fair. What do they mean? I didn't get my way. Do leaders make mistakes? Absolutely. Even the best of leaders are imperfect. But so often people attack the character of the leader rather than addressing the actual issue. We certainly see this in our current political system. The most hateful things that people say about those who have an opposing political view. But instead of talking about the issue itself, mean-spirited barbs are thrown back and forth about the character of the person. It gets personal. And here it gets personal when it comes from people closest to us so that it hurts the most. Remember that Miriam and Aaron are not just two random people. They're not part of the rabble that we read about last week. They're not even just other leaders among the Israelite community. Miriam is Moses' sister. Aaron is Moses' brother. They are family. And they are going after each other. Well, Miriam and Aaron going after Moses. And they do this by attacking Moses' wife, their sister-in-law. She's not even the issue. That's just mean. And it's insidious because their real problem is jealousy of Moses' unique leadership role. Now, perhaps this was triggered by the events of the previous chapter, where Moses had cried out to the Lord about the difficulty of his leadership role, and the Lord had responded by empowering 70 elders also to receive the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe Miriam and Aaron felt like their special roles were being downplayed and unappreciated. 
Their issue is really with the Lord for feeling like they aren't getting the recognition they think they deserve. This past week, the Gospel Coalition posted two outstanding blogs written by an outstanding pastor named Thabiti Anyabwil. The first was entitled, Sin is Irrational. And even the title is intriguing because we tend to talk about the rationality of sin. We can say, oh, I can understand why a person would do that. I can understand why a person felt that way and reacted the way they did. And certainly understanding and empathy, uh, relating, these can be helpful things. But sin really is irrational. Thabiti says this, sin is irrational in its break away from God. If God is the source of supreme pleasure, beauty, love, and goodness, and he is, then turning away from God makes no sense. It's irrational. Sin is irrational in its short-sightedness. If there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is death, and we choose that sinful way, then we think, feel, and act irrationally. Sin is irrational in its choice of the temporary and fleeting over the permanent and immovable. We all face the allure of the temporary pleasures of sin. However, those pleasures seek to distract us from an inheritance kept by the power of God through faith in a city whose foundations will never be shaken or destroyed. To choose what only lasts for a moment over what lasts forever is to act without rationality. When we are questioning our leaders or when we are being questioned as a leader, it's important to hear the question behind the question. What's the real concern? What does the real concern reveal about the hearts and the irrationality of sin that breaks us away from God is short-sighted and focuses on the self, the temporary, the fleeting. In the case of Miriam and Aaron, being jealous of Moses is echoed in the Pharisees' jealousy of Jesus because they were losing their influence over the people. And that's what really bothered him. The second article by Thabiti was entitled, Strife is Catchy. And he writes about how gossip grumblings spread like wildfire around church communities. I once did announcements in the form of gossip. Like, I heard the women were on a retreat this weekend. Did you hear about that? I heard the youth had an overnight. I hear the children are working on a musical. Did you hear about that? I heard the seniors are planning a day trip. What's up with that? My friend Matt Mitchell has written uh, the outstanding book, Resisting Gossip, and I have uh, extra copies uh, that I'm happy to give to you. In fact, if you read it carefully, you'll see me listed there because I was one of his uh, readers as it was being put along. Uh, So he actually mentions me in there uh, positively, I'm happy to say, because there's plenty of things I gave him. Uh, The the other stuff, he changed my name to protect the one who's not so innocent. So I'm in there actually several different ways. But um, in his book, he defines so helpfully gossip as Bearing bad news behind someone's back back out of a bad heart. Bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. Miriam and Aaron did not talk to Moses. They talked against Moses. Here's a good rule of thumb. If you wouldn't say it to the person's face or haven't said it to the person's face, then you're already wrong. Social media has enabled this behavior all the more. People can now post things that they would never say to a person's face, certainly not in that way. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. They spoke behind his back so that he wouldn't hear it. But the last phrase of verse 2 is chilling. And the Lord 
heard this. The Lord hears it. The Lord hears everything. And the Lord hears the heart behind everything that is heard and even the things that are not said. And so that takes us to verse 3 and the divine assessment of Moses. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And the phrase just sounds kind of strange, right? I'm the most humble man I know. Only it's not Moses that's saying it. It is the Lord's assessment saying that Moses is the most humble. Now, earlier in the service, we read Philippians 2, which says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you imagine if everyone did that? What a wonderful world that would be. Philippians 2 says that this is possible because of Jesus. That the humility of Jesus who humbled himself to become a man and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, is how it is that we are able to echo humility in our lives. By having Christ's name written on our heart as the choir sang. So Philippians 2 also says, do all things without complaining and arguing. Which means every time we complain and argue, we need to stop and say, okay, that's not Jesus. If I'm complaining and arguing, God, show me my heart. Write your name on my heart. Change my heart that I might reflect Christ rather than myself. It has been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And in fact, the word that's translated humble in verse 3 carries the sense that humility is being utterly dependent on God. That Moses is utterly dependent on God for the success of anything that he's going to do. And so verse 3 is that divine assessment. And in fact, there's a little play of, on words. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. The word uh, for man here is actually where we get the word Adam. And the, use, the word uh, for earth is actually Adama, Adam, uh, just the other phrase of Adam. Um, and so it's, it's Adam who's taken from the earth. Um, so right, earth, earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So it's, it's we who are made from the dust who uh, have our high standing because God has made us in his image. We are God's greatest creation, but we are immeasurably low and completely dependent in comparison to God. And so we are called to do all things to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's a great thing to take into the workplace. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You can be the greatest anything, the greatest athlete, artist, academic, but you are that as an image bearer of God. And so all vocations are honorable as God imaging, God glorifying vocations. An excellent student reflects the God of knowledge and wisdom. An excellent athlete reflects God's almighty strength and wisdom. An excellent artist reflects the creator God. An excellent cashier or anyone in the service industry reflects the God of order, serving, and caring for people. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, excellent leaders are humble leaders like Jesus. They're servant leaders. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. 
Jesus called the disciples to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servants. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wouldn't it be great if all of our leaders were like that? What a wonderful world it would be. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us the command without qualification, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Submit to your leaders, even when they're not perfect even when they're not the most humble. If they couldn't submit to Moses, who was the most humble man on the face of the earth, if they couldn't submit to Jesus, who was perfect, then humility is not so much the issue. Envy and grumbling is the issue. It isn't so much about the leaders, although it can be, and certainly is an element to that, but it's also about trying to follow leaders. Every time we want to challenge leaders, again, elders, boss, governing officials, we need to consider our hearts in this. So out of all this, the Lord speaks. In verses 4 through 9, the Lord speaks in a theophany, a visible appearance of God. God is, of course, always present. God is omnipresent. But the scriptures present theophanies, manifestations of God's visible presence, and he does so here. In verse 4, he calls Moses... Aaron and Miriam to meet with him at the tent of meeting. Now stop on that for a minute. Moses has no idea what the meeting's about, right? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam come to the tent of meeting, okay? Moses has done this before. Doesn't know what the meeting's about. In fact, Miriam and Aaron may not even know what it's about. Or they might think, hey, maybe God is gonna finally give us some of the recognition that we think we deserve. Well, God is gonna recognize Miriam and Aaron, all right. He's going to give them what they deserve, all right. He's going to call them out for their gossip grumblings. Verse 5 describes the theophany. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance to the tent, and summoned Aaron and Miriam. If the visual of that doesn't terrify you a bit, then you weren't really listening. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, the reverent fear of the holy God, this is what we're talking about. It's a bit like the fear of being called into the principal's office, right? But the Lord's holy presence being called into his presence, and the Lord speaks, and we hear him best when we hear him as the God that he is. And so when God speaks, he speaks in a poetic way. Why? Well, there's punctuation to it. The same way that Putting thoughts into a song just makes it stick. Much of the prophecies in scripture are poetic prophecies, allow for rich imagery and solemnity. In fact, Philippians 2, we're reading sort of these things about humility, and it says, your attitude ought to be like that of Jesus. And then Paul waxes poetic about Jesus and the humility of Christ. Because you sort of burst out in song, you burst out in poetry with that imagery, and to really highlight the importance of what's being said. And in verses 6 through 8, the Lord speaks essentially about how he speaks, the special way that he has chosen to speak through Moses. He speaks 
ordinarily through prophets, which in and of itself is special, and does it through visions and dreams. But with Moses, he calls Moses into his very presence. Moses went up to Mount Sinai in the cloud and met with God. Moses now goes into the tent of meeting and meets with God face to face, as it were. He sees the form of God. Certainly no mortal man can see God fully or he will die. And so in this, we actually see Moses, the great mediator for God's people, and the personal face-to-face type meetings that he had foreshadowing Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the very beginning of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Moses prefigured the prophetic mediation, ultimately, of Jesus, who does see God the Father face to face. Jesus is able to mediate between God and God's people in a singularly unique manner. When we read God's word, when we truly meditate on God's word, we hear the Lord who speaks. And so sometimes people will say, I feel like the Lord is telling me. No, no, he's not. The Lord is telling me to tell you. No, he really isn't. I heard the Lord say, Really? What did he sound like? If you've heard the Lord, the Lord speaking, you know it. And you know it because you are filled with a reverent fear and it transforms you through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ applied by the Spirit. You are trained, changed. Sin is driven out. You become more holy. In fact, Mark Dever says, holiness is freedom from the bitter taskmaster that is sin. Let me say that again. Holiness is freedom from the bitter taskmaster that is sin. What is it that we look forward to for eternal life? The new heavens and the new earth and being in God's presence. We look forward to being free from sin, to being completely without sin in ourselves. If we are looking forward to being sin-free for all of eternity, do we not want as much of that right now as we can get? Why would we cling to anything, to be chained to anything that the Lord says, I'm trying to set you free of this? Holiness is freedom from the bitter taskmaster that is sin. And so when the Lord speaks, he is speaking in order to free us from sin that we might walk in newness of life. And that's really then what we see in this final section of this chapter where Miriam is primarily affected because she was the instigator, Aaron followed. He is certainly guilty as well. In fact, Aaron is the first to confess, please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. So Aaron knows that he is certainly culpable. He didn't stop Miriam. But Miriam instigated, and so Miriam is the one who has turned leprous. And in this, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, uh, we have what really is the sin of equals. As we talked about in the larger catechism. What are the duties of equals? To regard the dignity and worth of each other, giving honor to go one before the other, to rejoice in each other's gifts and advancement as their own. What are the sins? Undervaluing the worth, envying gifts, grieving at the advancement or prosperity of another, and usurping preeminence over another. We see that all the time. It is a hard thing to rejoice in the promotion of somebody else at work. It is a hard thing when you get passed over because somebody else gets it. 
and for equals, when we want to see other people succeed, to rejoice in their success and genuinely to rejoice in their success and not try to uber people, but to say, thanks be to God that you were able to be promoted in this way. Now, there's also sins and duties that the catechism speaks of with regard to superiors and inferiors in those relationships. And I could probably go blow for blow with just about anybody on failed leaders. You could talk about the way in which leaders have failed me and the way in which that has impacted me, the way superiors have affected me, the way uh, equals as leaders have affected me. And I could also tell you all the ways in which I have done that to you, the ways that I have failed you as a leader, the way that I have failed my fellow elders, the way I have failed my deacons, the way I have failed each of you in this room in some way, shape, or form. We could talk about all those things. We could talk about them to the end of days, but never get to Jesus. And so what we're called to do is to get to Jesus, and that's what the Lord does. He drives Aaron and Miriam to Jesus. The way it starts is that Moses intercedes for Miriam because he already desires her forgiveness and reconciliation. He wants, he is ready to forgive. Oh God, please heal her. If someone owes you an apology, are you ready to receive that apology and grant forgiveness? Are you ready to forgive? We love to hold a grudge. It puts us in a power position. Matthew 18 recognizes that forgiveness is hard. If you go to someone who has sinned against you, you have to go desiring to receive a confession, ready to grant forgiveness. And if a person comes to you and they're ready to confess, are you ready to grant forgiveness? Moses received the confession of Aaron, the confession of Miriam, and immediately intercedes to the Lord for them that they might be forgiven. So Jesus stands ready continually to receive our confessions and to intercede to the Father on our behalf. It's why our prayer of confession and worship is always followed by the assurance of the gospel. We confess and we are always assured that there is forgiveness. There is no time in which we confess and God goes, you know what, not this time. I'm tired of hearing it. I don't believe you. God says, thank you. Jesus clears the way. Now at the end though, a really important thing happens. The Lord says something that is, sounds a little offensive. If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Now that's not a conditional forgiveness. The forgiveness is granted What happens is the grace of experiencing the cleansing, the grace of experiencing the sanctifying work of the Lord, to have disgrace removed. Restoration is a process. Repentance and reconciliation and restoration is a process. Someone might say, yeah, I forgive you. We're good, whatever. Let's not talk about it anymore. And it doesn't mean there's really restoration. It just means I don't really want to talk to you about it anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. So let's just not talk. I told you about uh, another community I was a part of where there had been a teacher strike 20 years previous and everybody in the community had drawn up sides. And 20 years later, there were people that were still unwilling to speak to somebody else because of something that had happened 20 years earlier. And I would say, can we get you two together and try and restore that? And their answer was always, oh no, I'm over it, it's fine. You're not over it, it's not fine. You just said you can't even be in the same room with that person. It's now 40 years later and they still can't stand to be in the same room with certain people. But they would tell you, oh, we're fine, we're over it. No, no, you're not. Because there was no restoration. 
And so a process of restoration is exactly that, that the relationship is completely restored. Now, in peacemaking, there is overlooking. That's not escaping. It's not saying, I just don't want to talk about it. Let's just forget about it. It's, it actually says, I am choosing as a form of conciliation to forgive without needing an apology because I want there to be restoration to the relationship. But then there's a process for that to happen. And what we see in this is that Miriam was restored over a seven-day period. There was shame and disgrace for Miriam. No way for her to be out of that. She knew that she had sinned, and there was shame with that. And so she was taken out of the camp and the shame and disgrace that goes with that. But there was an understanding that you were going outside in order to be given time and space as a means by which to repent, to be cleansed, and at the end of that time, you were completely restored within the community, free and clean, with no more guilt or shame. You never had somebody looking at you sideways to go, yeah, I know you were outside the camp and you're back now, but I'll still remember what you did. She was restored. In fact, you read verse 15. Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. The people did not move on till she was brought back. We're not going anywhere until Miriam is with us. We can't wait for Miriam to be with us. We can't wait for her to be restored to us and for her to know that she is restored to us. She experienced disgrace. Now let her experience grace and complete restoration. For we know that Jesus ultimately was taken outside the camp, that we might go outside the camp and to be restored from our disgrace with the grace of Christ and to experience complete restoration in our relationship with the Lord and his people. May that be the mark of who we are as God's people, that we are ready to forgive, that we are ready to restore. And may that truth set us free. Amen.